our church who's willing to maybe be someone with some gifts for service who wouldn't mind being available to, you know, it's usually someone who might be alone or single or a couple that doesn't, maybe their children are older or just, uh, right. just kind, of, kind of play it out that way. Thanks. Hello, Mimi. Hello, Connie. Even though you're hiding, <laughs> I found out. I find out. I found out how to, oh, how to look at my. I found out how to get the list on the speaker now. Now I can. Now you can't hide anymore. <laughs> I think she's hearing you. Can you hear me, Connie? I can hear you, but I can't see. Now I can see you. I'm having trouble with my computer, so. Yeah, got you. <laughs> hey, Tom. Masquerading as Elena. Oh. Elena's Tom. <laughs> Where are we time-wise here? We're about ready, aren't we? Check my my uh, Apple time. We're 10.30. Lord with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. Blessed Lord has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant to a man such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which has given us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello, Yuri. Welcome. Who else is anyone else hiding there? Let's see there. It's going to join uh, after his doctor's appointment. Okay. Nancy. Yeah, Nancy's there. Hi, Nancy. All right, we're in chapter 16 today, and this just continues the section of John where we're getting um, from Jesus teaching that pertains to what life will be like once he has risen and ascended, and then they are without him, and then when the Holy Spirit is there. So it pertains to the, the reality of the Christian life. So we'll just jump in with, and if you're uh, on uh, line, please mute. And then when you want to talk, unmute, because there was a little bit of noise there and I can't mute you here. Um, so we're in chapter 16. So these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So. What he's saying there is. Um, He's telling them things that should not be made to stumble. Um, 
So how would they stumble? They believe in Jesus. How do any of us stumble when we encounter something in our lives that we don't see how it fits in with our faith? It doesn't, like God didn't do what we wanted or expected, and that challenges us. So he's telling them this so they won't stumble. They won't be... um, It's like they're walking along. The word here kind of means like there's a barrier in the way that knocks you off course. And what he's telling them is um, when 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 Jesus goes away in the ascension, they're going to be arrested. They're going to be stunned from the synagogue. They're going to be treated very badly um, because the... Religious authorities are not going to accept them, just as they didn't accept Jesus. So he's telling them that, so when they see it happen, they won't go, well, how could this happen? Why is this happening to me? Because he said it's going to happen to you. So it becomes not a surprise, but a prophecy. And we should note that... um, There's also something we have to take to heart in our own lives because the New Testament is clear that we're also called to suffer. That following Christ means you're going to share in the cross, that that your share of the cross may come from temptation, may come from exclusion from, from places because you have an allegiance to Jesus, may come in a number of ways but you will have it. And therefore, when it happens, you shouldn't, that shouldn't lead you to stumble like this is some unusual thing. It doesn't mean the struggle itself is not a struggle. It just means that following Jesus means being engaged in a struggle. Continuum. There's a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's a battle against temptation on a lot of different levels. And um, actually, the struggle um, it takes on a lot of different contours. So, for example, your temptation may be that you experience misfortune and are in need, and you're struggling to believe in God in the face of misfortune. However, equally a temptation is you prosper greatly and become rich and that those, that wealth can equally draw you away from faith in Jesus Christ into worldly concerns. So the idea of the spiritual battle is always a battle to hold on to Christ in all of the various stages you're in. And it shouldn't be a surprise like, why am I struggling? And there are certain strands of American and Western Christianity often coming under sort of the prosperity gospel or what they used to call the health and wealth gospel. But also just a general sense comes that, you know, if you really believe, things ought to go well for you. Therefore, if, if things don't go well for you, there must be some essential problem with your faith. And... The Bible challenges that assumption. What what book of the Old Testament principally challenges that assumption? Job. Because Job, we're told, is a righteous man who did everything right and ends up 
stick scraping his boils by the garbage dump, and his friends come and say, well, you should repent. And Job says, well, no, not because he didn't think he had any sin, because he knew he had, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, um, so sometimes the righteous suffer. It's interesting in this regard, too, uh, not to digress too far, um, in our morning lessons, morning prayer, we're reading Proverbs now. And Proverbs is a wisdom book that um, sets forth an idea of rather uh, straightforward, what you might call retributive justice. You, you know, you, you, you seek wisdom, you follow the way of the Lord, blessings come upon you. You act like a fool, you seek short-term gain, ultimately your ruin will come. And there are other wisdom books, so there's a, there's, there's a dimension of truth to that. However, there are other wisdom books like Job, like Ecclesiastes, that says, just wait a minute, because sometimes it's not so simple as that. Well, it's interesting too. Yeah, what what is suffering? I mean, relative to the the actual physical afflictions known to most of human history, few of us have really suffered. You know, we're we're in the we're in the age of um, you know what do you call painkillers, and you know, and and you go into surgery and they knock you out, you come up, you're done, you get a bunch of more painkillers. We're not in the day where, okay, a surgery are here. Here's a bottle of whiskey, a few squigs, and a leather strap. You, 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 you cinch down on that, you know, and we're a day when sicknesses were more. So, but I also think that what we have to understand, and this is also important, that suffering is not primarily, the Bible's talking about, that we're, our sharing is not primarily just physical pain. It's a spiritual battle to hold on to faith in Jesus Christ in the face of the various challenges of the world. Sometimes they're physical, like they were with Job. Sometimes they're just, maybe you're struggling at a time when you have a great desire for something that you're just not gonna get. And how do you endure through that? You know, how do you hold on to Christ, trusting that ultimately God will fulfill us, but we have to go through an interim period. So this is the kind of, of, so suffering, it's not just physical. And that's, I think, one of the problems of the age we live in is that because well-being is so, so much associated with physical health and monetary prosperity, there's no category where your health is good, you, you got some money, what's your problem? and not understanding that the primary affliction of the human condition is separation from God. And you can be healthy and wealthy and miserable. And we can take a tour through the area around here and we can show that to you. You know, but the problem, one of the problems of wealth is you can mask your pain better. It's, I mean, I, and I, I don't want to, um, I'm not, 
like pick on anybody or or or, or unfairly, but like I I um, my office looks over our preschool parking lot, so people come and drop off their kids. We see some Bentleys. We see some. If you look at that, they're looking great. Life is good, but. If you go home and go behind the doors, you know, it's not always quite like that. Now, one of the things about on the other side, you know, where, where people have less resources, sometimes it's the same pain, but you can't deny it as well. So often the, phys the, the presenting physical sign of affliction that you can't deny is actually a gift that lets you know and, and sometimes wealth and other things give you constant painkillers that enable you to deny and keep God at bay because you can do so many things to cover up. And Yeah, but they didn't. They, they, they had the fundamental alienation, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so anyway, we'll so move on from the section. But, but he's telling them, these things I've told you, so when it comes, you'll remember, and you won't be all surprised that you're getting treated just the same way I got treated, and you have the same struggle I had. So verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So a lot of the dialogue that Jesus had with his disciples was a conflict between a spiritual understanding of what Jesus was really saying and, and the, uh, the ears of the disciples at this point in time they could only understood in a very fleshly, literal sense. Jesus says, I'm going away. And they're like, I'm sad. Why are you going? They don't understand. Well, of course, he's going to die and rise and go to the Father in the ascension. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. I mean, we have 2,000 years of Understanding, they're just like, oh, I'm going away. So they're sad because he said he's going away. Nevertheless, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. It's interesting here, I will send him to you. Uh, I want to digress here into a historical Nicene Creed debate um, between the East and the West, where in the Western Nicene Creed, we say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, whereas in the East, they say only proceeds from the Father. Um, and uh, But the point is, John's Gospel does make it clear that, that um, the Son has agency in sending the Spirit. Though the Spirit comes from the Father, the Spirit comes through the Son. And part of the point of this is that all, um, and this is our point in the Nicene Creed when we say uh, the Father and the Son, we would really probably, the West would have been better to say that he proceeds from the Father through the Son. So it's not like um, 
you have two people out here. I can send the spirit. You can send the spirit. You know, we're competing who's going to send the spirit or two people. But it is all of the activities of God are Trinitarian. There's the Father who speaks through the Son, and then the Spirit manifests what the Father says through the Son. So anyway, a little digression there. But um, I will send him to you. Now, it's better, why is it better for Jesus to go away and send the Spirit than just to remain in person? Why is it better for us? It's expedient for you, he says. It's to your advantage, verse 7, that I go away, as he says. We all get the Holy Spirit then. What's that? We all receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit then. Had anyone received the Holy Spirit as of in the pre-crucifixion time horizon? Yes. No. Prophets, right? Prophets and kings. Say that again. Didn't the prophets and kings receive the anointing? Okay, yeah. Well, this, is good, this is a good discussion to have. Um, so the Old Testament measure of the Spirit by which the prophets spoke and the kings were anointed um, and the priests ministered was a different gift of the Spirit than the Pentecostal gift of the Spirit. It was a Spirit that enabled people to minister, serve God in the Old Covenant age, but it was a, it was a it was not a, um, a a permanent gift of the Spirit. It could be withdrawn. How do we know that? Give me an Old Testament example that tells us the Holy Spirit could be withdrawn. Oh. Paul, exactly. Saul, yeah, so King Saul. King Saul was anointed with the Spirit and prophesied, and then when in disobedience, God took the Holy Spirit from him. So David, when he sins, this is one of the, in Psalm 51, when David, we understand that to be David's psalm of repentance after the whole Bathsheba deal. One of the lines is, um, cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because I've seen what happened to him when you did it. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that to me. Uh, and, and so, um, but, so, and Saint and John the Baptist also, the Spirit came upon John and prophesied. But Jesus said of John, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Because John's, operating in the spirit was still in the old covenant arrangement and dispensation. So what happens with the New Testament, so so, so what, 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 why, let's work this out a little bit because it's important to think a little bit, why wasn't the Old Testament gift of the spirit permanent? What? Jesus hadn't done what? Well, okay, before he went away, what did he do? He hadn't borne our sins yet. Yeah, so so could the old, here's the key is, 
could the Old Testament gift of the Spirit give life, give eternal life? No. Why? Because the Old Covenant was, here's my covenant with Israel. If you are completely and continually faithful to my covenant, you'll have life. And they weren't faithful. And, and, and so they could not achieve the goal of the Old Testament, which was to be faithful to the covenant and so as to, to receive life. So eternal life was not available as a fruit of the Old Covenant. So the gift of the Spirit per, per conveyed a sense of God's presence in that temporal way. To John the Baptist, the Spirit came upon him, but even John did not yet have eternal life. Eternal life is made available by the death of Jesus, by the life of Jesus, which fulfills the obligations of the Old Covenant, the death of Jesus, which atones for our sins, the resurrection, which expands the horizon of human life beyond the grave, because Jesus is the new man. The old man, Adam, died but couldn't get beyond the grave. That's the Old Covenant in a certain sense. That's why the Jewish hope was the hope for resurrection. Why? Because the Old Covenant never got them beyond the grave. You die, we're waiting, we're dead. That's why Ezekiel 37 says, you know, God says to Ezekiel, you know, can these bones live? Because Israel's dead as a result of the Old Covenant. And so the prophecy of resurrection. So Jesus um, represents in his life and death Israel. Fulfills the covenant on behalf of offers the death that finally atones for, ascends and takes his rightful place as Lord, and and then sends life. Now the gift of the Spirit can actually give eternal life, life that does not end, because Jesus has inaugurated a human life that does not end that he can share with us. Before his resurrection, there was no human life that did not end. And that's why the incarnation is absolutely the essential beginning. He had to become exactly like us, live a human life, and fulfill on our behalf what none of us were able to fulfill, to share with us the life that only he could give us. So this is why it's better that he goes away, because he's with them now, and the Holy Spirit is in and around the community but the Holy Spirit is not indwelling the disciples, and they do not have eternal life. So it's better that he goes away, completes the work, ascends to heaven, and the other, the other expediency of the, or benefit of the ascension, is that if Jesus is a, a man boundaried by time and space, he could be with any group of disciples in one place at one time, but he can't be with all disciples in all places at all times. Only through the ascension, the movement from the dimension of time and space into the dimension of, of the eternal, where 
that is not bounded, is Jesus, is it possible for Jesus to do what he now does through the Holy Spirit, which is manifest himself in, you know, at the altar at St. Matthew's and one in Australia and in something going on in all kinds of things. Otherwise, if you're a man, he, you know, he's okay, we, we, you know, you take a, as many Christians, we have to book him for maybe one time now in 40 years to come by and see us. <laughs> So this is the this is the idea. Um, so when he ascends, he'll send them the Spirit. And the key here, um, the Helper. Again, we've talked about this word. The Greek word is Paraclete. It, the word like Advocate is maybe a better word. I, I really th- there's no perfect word for it. There would be a justification in English just to translate it as Paraclete, and then let us draw from it the full meaning of the Greek word. This is often a problem in Bible translation where a certain word being translated has a meaning in the original Hebrew or Greek language. When we bring it into English, it, it, it narrows the meaning to something that we think of this word. And this is one reason, incidentally, that um, in liturgical language, that is traditionalists were sometimes reluctant to change words, even if they're archaic, because they're conveying a timeless concept, and it's better for us to understand all the dimensions of that word, where it came from, than try to turn it into something you can understand, which means you don't really understand it, because you're going to understand it in the narrow way you understand that word, not really what it meant, timeless. So, um, the helper, the advocate, and and the, the reality here is that the Father sent the Son, to manifest himself. Now Jesus will go to the Father, and Jesus will then send the Spirit. Jesus represents the Father, the Spirit represents Jesus. So he's like, it's sent to be with us in the absence of Jesus, to advocate and be present with us all the ways that Jesus is. And we talked about this, like, uh, we, when we read this a couple weeks ago, in one of the passages where it was, um, like Romans, where it says, Romans chapter 8, um, we do not know how to pray like we should, but the Spirit helps us with groans that cannot be understood. So when we come to our prayer, we like our connection to the Father in the Spirit, just in the Spirit, helps us. The Spirit can say, this is what I need, because we don't like. And that's like sometimes in prayer, the best kind of prayer sometimes when we have this list, okay, God, I need this and this. But then we realize it gets better. We're like, I don't really know what I need. I think I want this, but if you give me that, maybe that's going to be horrible. So that's the spirit is an advocate. A helper is like, the problem with helper, it sounds like I'm walking around, hey, I need some help now. Come, you know, get the, you know, walk the dog for me or something. It's, it's a stronger word than that. You know, this one who comes alongside, who's with us. Um, now, so let's talk about this ministry of the, of the Spirit. And there's there's two directions or two dimensions of the ministry of the Spirit that Jesus is going to talk about here. It's ministry to the world, and then it's ministry amongst those who believe. So first he talks about the world. He says, um, and when he has come, he will convict the world 
of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, this conviction, and this this kind of gets to the the um, translation of Paraclete as advocate, because it takes on a legal sense here that the advocate, the spirit, is is making the case for God in in towards the unbelievers, convicting them with the desire to bring them to repentance, but it's 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 here's the here's the evidence that you're wrong. And so sin um, of sin, verse nine, because they do not believe in me. So this is the, the, a foundational thing that we really have to get our minds around. This is the preeminent sin of the world now. It's not that, um, uh, you know, that I mean, there's a lot of sins in the world. You know, uh, the, 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 the killing of the unjust, various other ways that, that people do bad things, sex trafficking, all sorts of things that are sins. But the primary sin is that the world does not believe in the Son of God, does not trust God. And that goes right back to the beginning in Genesis that um, that uh, the, pri- the primary and original sin was not the teeth on the whatever food, we'll say the apple, but it doesn't say it was an apple. It might have been a fig or something, I don't know. Uh, but it was that they didn't trust God, didn't believe in him. Because God had said, don't do that. So, not believing, not trusting, they, they then committed sin. So all of the sins we commit are simply manifestations of the fact we don't believe. And the way to come back to God is say, okay, I, I realize I don't trust now help me to believe. And Jesus now is the image of God in whom the world is called to put its trust. And to, to not put your trust in Jesus is to be in sin. That's the state of sin, the state of alienation from connection to God through Jesus in the spirit. That's what it means that the world is under under the influence of sin. Of sin because I do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So, what is righteousness? According to the Old Covenant, if you were righteous, what had you done? Well, that's that's a very um, that's a um, post Old Testament take. Obey the rules. It would have been more like be faithful to the Torah, because the, the Torah. This is something that sometimes we 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 don't. Um, the language of law, uh, rules, law. That really isn't the language of of Mount Sinai. Uh, Torah, the word Torah itself, which is usually translated as law, means something like instruction. 
God, you're my people. Okay, here's your Torah. Here's the way you're supposed to live. And if we trust God and we begin to live that way, the blessings of the covenant begin to. So, so um, um, righteousness would be to live in harmony with the with with the instructions God has given us, and therefore to be counted righteous. So, what we get from the old covenant is that no one is righteous, no, not one, as Saint Paul says. The old covenant and its 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 requirements, its instructions. It only becomes law when you disobey it. Now it's a rule you broke. And so no one is righteous. So Jesus is the one who lived in communion with the Father and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the Torah by doing what God the Torah said to do in his life, and by dying the death the Torah said we needed to atone for sin. His resurrection and his ascension is his vindication, the declaration by the Father that this is the righteous one. So Easter is really, at one level of seeing Easter as a courtroom scene. God has rendered a verdict. He has raised his son from the dead. I've seen your life, your righteous death, and now I raise you to life. So, so that's the righteous requirement is fulfilled by the righteous one, and his vindication is that he's not here anymore. God has vindicated him. of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. How is the ruler of this world judged already? Because the rule of this world is judged. That's what that's what Jesus says here. Judgment has occurred. Why do we still face demonic temptation? Well, death has been overcome, but he hasn't been cast into the lake of fire yet. So he still so, is allowed to crawl around after us. <laughs> so, so the um, the idea of um, The devil holding the world captive. It's a timeless narrative that that um, that begins in the garden, where the serpent revelation tells us that, that the devil is that great serpent of old called the devil and Satan um, tempts the first man, and he sins, and therefore death comes into human experience. And this is how the world is captive. And the devil, by temptation, by captivity to sin, keeps the world captive under his sway. So, and it is death, the certainty and inevitability. And here it is what we should understand here about death, because this is very important that 
while physical death is a manifestation of the separation from God, the primary death of Genesis was not physical death. The primary death of Genesis 3 was the separation of the first humans from God that was caused by sin. And this is where this is what makes sense of the language where he says in Genesis, the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And of course, then they eat and they live to be like 500 years old. It's like, wait a minute, you said the day. Well, because the day, the minute they were separated, they knew they were naked, they hid from God in the bushes, they were dead. Their physical bodies went on for a few hundred years, but they were separated from God. So Jesus, the same way that, that we talked about Jesus through his death, resurrection, ascension, the spirit, um, that's why the spirit's presence is better than, with G, than Jesus' presence before all that. So now, um, having conquered death, He's broken the demonic captivity of humanity because now, through the gift of the Spirit, we have life that the devil cannot touch. And um, there's a passage in in Hebrews. um, Chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, shared in the same, shared in our flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all of their lifetime subject to bondage. So the primary thing that it has restored to life through the Spirit, and we have eternal life. Um, this has always characterized committed Christian faith as a freedom from the fear of death. It's why the martyrs were willing to be martyrs, because um, they knew that, that, that though their bodies, all bodies had to die, they had a, a life that Caesar and his authority couldn't touch. And so... When we can live life in communion with God because we have eternal life and do what he asks us to do, no matter how the world threatens us, we are free, even if the world kills us. We're we're free. And so the ruler's world's been judged because Jesus has conquered uh, death and taken away, and and now the the devil has lost, essentially. The, the, the fall of man is a spiritual battle where the devil tried to win the world for himself. And the Son of God, the new man, came to conquer the devil. Um, uh, to, and that's the ancient prophecy of Genesis 3, where the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And um, so now we have life. So the, the devil is judged. So the temptation we face... In, in the Christian life is the um, harassment made possible or, or, or that, that can still be 
you know, performed by a defeated enemy. Revelation says, the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows his time is short. And if you understand, like, if you ever think about this, the human psychology of evil, people will have, like, there'll be crimes. People say, well, just there was no reason for it. Well, when you know you're all finished and you think you've been wronged and you're mad at everything, there's no reason for what you do. You just want to hurt people. That's the demonic psychology. It infects people. I just want to destroy things because because of my personal pride has been wounded. I wanted to be who I wanted to be, and God told me I couldn't be. What's the story about human history? But that's certainly exactly in our time a greater advent of this idea that we can be whoever we want to be. It's a demonic lie. And the problem when people play it out is they eventually realize, oh, I can't be you. I can be what you can. What we can be is who God made us to be. But we can be the fullness of that, and that requires acceptance, a surrender, and a trust that what God did is is work. And we have a significant place in that in that work. So the ruler of the world is judged. The devil's been judged, even though it's not completely completed. But this is this is the mystery of what we would call um, inaugurated eschatology, and it's the tension that is often gotten wrong, which is that the kingdom of God is already here through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is on His throne in heaven. He rules the world from his throne. His kingdom is manifest in his church. But it's not fully here yet. Because there are still bad people doing bad things. So it's here in one way, but not fully here in another way. So the devil is defeated, but he's not fully gone yet. But if we understand rightly as Christians, we understand that the 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 the, the any triumph of evil is apparent, illusory, and temporal. It will always be judged. That's the, that's the verdict of, of history. So, the rule of this world has been judged. So that's the ministry to the world. Jesus is... Um, Sin is you don't believe in me. Jesus is the righteous one who's been justified, and the devil is judged. That's the that's the way the world is convicted and called to repentance. And he says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So the you here, of course, is in a certain sense can be embraced as a personal promise, but the you is the church. 
that he will lead you into all, all truth. And this is why throughout, you know, even in the, in the New Testament, the, the unanimity of the body in truth is so important. Um, and I would say that in terms of the spirit leading us into truth, we can think of it in a couple different ways. So in terms of like what we believe about God and Jesus and the spirit, we look to the, so you said he'd lead the church into truth. So this is why we think the tradition is so important, because the tradition of the church, the, the authentic tradition, is that which the Holy Spirit led the church into, the right understanding of who, who God is. So we say the Nicene Creed, that is the truth, that every Christian, essentially, can say amen to from the ancient times. And, and it, it meant that, that. And so that's why um, when somebody says, well, the Spirit told me that you know Jesus really isn't the Son of God, we know that's the spirit of error. So when St. John says, test the spirits, we test it by the kind of inherited deposit of truth, and that's where we can identify what's wrong. Now, and there's a whole discussion that we'll get into today about, you know, what qualifies as the ancient deposit, but there is such a thing, and, and that's our perspective. Then there's another level of which um, the Holy Spirit can lead us individually into truth, like the Holy Spirit does speak to us individually and will lead you as, through your own prayer to greater understanding what's really going on in your own life, what you need to confront and work through. So there is a personal aspect of that. But what he leads you personally to understand about you and your life will never conflict with the truth he's led the whole church into. And that's the thing we have to be careful, careful about that. So to the world, it's conviction. But to those who put their faith in Jesus, who become righteous in him, he will lead us into, to, to, he will help us to live faithfully in communion with the Father. One, with the world, the Spirit is adversarial. With us, he's making his home with us. And this also pertains to the great commandment, the new commandment that we have back in John 13, that you love one another as I have loved you. And that's where the mark of the Spirit with us is that love for one another in the community, um, which doesn't stand contrary to doctrine, but it, it um, without that love, doctrine by itself is just a bunch of things you believe in. It must be manifested in actual faithfulness, love for God and love for others worked out. Because we talked about, we talked about that it doesn't make the demands of love easy. It just makes it what you have to do and wrestle with. And so sometimes what the Spirit will lead you into is like, how do I love here? Pray for that for about half a year, or a year, or two years, or three years. It become clearer to you how you should love. But abiding in Christ in, in, the, in the framework of John's gospel, trying to figure out what you should do 
God will make it clearer and clearer to you through the Spirit what you should do. And then sometimes you can get counsel from others that can help clarify your own lack of clarity because the gifts of the body all help the other members of the body. There's that. Verse 16. Now again to a section about the um, what you might call the psychological experiential dimension of what's going to happen. He says in verse 16, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then <clears throat> Some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says, a little while? We don't know what he's saying. <laughs> you try to picture the group here. What's that? What is, you know, we're all frustrated. We know what he's talking about. You know, and Jesus is, is, is uh, offering the wisdom. Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him and said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that the human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. So this is just the psychological dimension of the experience of the crucifixion and resurrection. The world will rejoice, you'll have sorrow. Jesus is arrested, taken from them, beaten, and they are grieving in sorrow of what's happening and not understanding. But the world, the world, the powers that be are rejoicing. They're taking the troublemaker. <clears throat> they're getting rid of him. And, and so there's a rejoicing and a sorrow. But um, he dies. The resurrection comes. And then the worm turns. I'll see you again. Your heart will rejoice. On Easter night, they were full of joy because they saw him again. And then he analogizes that to childbirth. That what's happening really here is is all this pain feels like death. Just like a woman giving birth, if she had no knowledge of what happened, if like just just got pregnant, you think something's happening in me, it's gonna die. And then but if you didn't know, but then all of a sudden life comes out. So Good Friday looked like the end of everything, and all of a sudden there's Easter and a new creation. The thing about that psychological process is I think it regularly applies to our own lives because our own participations in the cross often lead us into seasons. We think the whole thing's going to hell, I'm going to die, and we enter into what I call catastrophization. Our uh, reactive brains run around, it's all going to fall apart, and people are doing that in spades now in our world. Oh no! It's like, and, and the reality is, we have no idea what God is doing, but we can be assured that Jesus is still Lord, 
that out of the turmoil of the current time, some new and good thing is going to emerge. And it will be, um, I, that's why I love this world for the, this word, biblical word for this time called apocalyptic, because um, apocalyptic in Bible means revealing. We think it means like falling apart. Um, but like in our epistle for Epiphany, where St. Paul says uh, that God revealed to the holy apostles, the word there is, is related to apocalypse. So in this, all this upheaval in the world where the world is falling apart, God is revealing himself and God's doing his work. And we as Christians need to learn to um Keep our eyes on what God is doing and not just on the things around. Because we know the narrative of cross and resurrection. We know that that the sentence of death, the world, and the, the doom of the world that permeated Good Friday is not is just the beginning of the story. And that by the death we come to resurrection. So by the turmoil and struggle of our lives, as we stay connected to Christ in prayer, and as the Spirit is with us in that space, and we remain faithful to him, though something like a falling apart may happen, the result of this is going to be new life as we stay with him. We will see him again, our hearts will rejoice. So it's the, it's the dynamic of Good Friday and Easter, but it's also the paradigm, the continual paradigm of the Christian life. Make sense? And so it's why we should rejoice in our sufferings, as St. Paul says. Why? Because he knows. God, Paul do. It's like, like we talked at morning prayer today. Um, it's, it's an amazing passage. If you haven't read, you don't read morning prayer, Ephesians chapter 3, we get the end part tomorrow. St. Paul is in jail, and he is writing this epistle about um, the mystery of God that's being revealed and what God is doing, and he's going to come to them, and, and, and he says to them, now, so I don't want you to be to lose heart for my sufferings. He's in jail, chained up, and he's telling them, hey, it's okay, because I see what God is doing. And that leads in the passage tomorrow morning prayer is to know the, the length and breadth and depth and height and the love of God. St. Paul, in every visible way for St. Paul, the whole thing's falling apart. But he, he know, he's aware of this, the Good Friday, the Easter, the bearing of the cross leads to the resurrection. So he's aware that somehow his imprisonment is going to work out for good. Can we embrace that in our own lives? That the darkest things we face mean God's, and when God's at work in that, the Holy Spirit is with us in it, we have eternal life. Though we, we participate in the sufferings, we're also going to have this new life manifested on the other side. We will see him again, our hearts will rejoice. And then verse 23, and in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So, the advocate, the helper, the paraclete who is with us helps us to pray. And we can ask God what we want and we get it. But, of course, this obviously means in accordance with his will. But that's way better than what we would ask for anyway. And we know that. So what can we ask for? 
wisdom to know what we're supposed to do, courage and strength to face the temptation we're facing, the experience of God's peace and joy in the midst of what we're, all these things we know are God's will. Um, we tend to ask for, you know, obvious, obviously, look, we have circumstances in life. You know, we need a job, we pray for a job. We're sick, we pray to get well. But that's a surface level thing. And I, I don't mean that that doesn't get answered. I mean, can we get beneath that and say, what's God doing in the middle of this? How am I experiencing him with me in this space that's increasing my closeness to God? And that's, the, that's, where, that's where the power of prayer really comes out that God has given us eternal life and to experience the fullness of Christ with us through the Spirit in all things. I suggest that ask and you will receive that your joy will be made full. Hold on to that thought because this tagline at the end draws that out a little bit more of this chapter. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming and I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. So, as a result of our baptismal status as children of God, where, where, where Jesus, the Father will say to Jesus in this Sunday's Gospel, you are my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. We are baptized into Jesus. So the, the love of the Father for the Son is now his love for us. We are beloved. And this is why it says the Father himself loves you, because you believe me and you're, in, you're part of my body the love for the Father resides on us. So we don't have to, the, the, the same providential concern that, that the Father had for the Son extends now to us through the Spirit. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. The disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe you came forth from God. It's kind of like a brave Peter-like proclamation. Oh, now we get it. And Jesus said, do you believe now? The hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. It's instructive in our own experience of this sorrow and joy that the first apostles utterly failed to stay connected to Jesus in his, and this is partly necessary because for Jesus to fulfill the Torah on behalf of Israel, he had to be alone with it. He had to do it. And so when he comes on Sunday, to tell the disciples, you know, peace, your sins are forgiven. He says that to a group who's utterly failed. And when we come to the altar to receive Christ, we come as people who 
have left undone what we should have done, who sinned in thought, word, and deed. And the verdict always comes, it's okay. Why is it okay? Because we've done really great? No, because the Spirit is with us, and it's okay. We have our faith in Jesus. We're growing in our ability to do the will of God, but our status with him doesn't depend on that. It's we trust him and we have this verdict. So they're all going to abandon him just like we all do. We drift into some things that are not so faithful sometimes. But verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So notice that this, this whole thing, the spirit is in the world convicting the world. The spirit is in the church, leading the church and her members into truth. So as we in the spirit or in the world, we're going to have tribulation in the world just as Jesus did. So our prayer will not free us from that tribulation, but it will give us God's presence with us in that tribulation, in a sense of joy, which is something in the heart that is just a sense of life and peace and presence that coexists with exterior turmoil. In the world you have tribulation, but but be of good cheer, I have overcome. And incidentally, um, here the word overcome is a weak word. It, um, it comes up again in 1 John. It's a weak translation, I should say. The word, it should say, I've conquered the word. It's the word from which the Nike Shoe Company takes its name. Uh, it's the Greek word for conquest or victory. And just Jesus says, um, the world you have tribulation, be of good cheer, I've conquered the world. That is, everything you, you are struggling with has already been conquered. And as you continue to be faithful to me, I will conquer it in your life also. Don't worry about it. It's going to happen. Any thoughts about that? Closing questions? Let us pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. See you all next week, hopefully. Uh, next week we have that, what was often called the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where he prays for the church. It's really significant because it lets us know what he wants from us and for us versus what we all want. So when we say, and you ask the Father, my name will give you, it's probably significant that we kind of align with the kind of things he's asking for. <laughs> oh, all right. Good to have you all with us online. Thank you. And Mar- Marion, she she moved to the side so we can she can see us all now. See, we we welcomed you into the group. Angel here too. We so it's like a big happy family here. We're starting to welcome our online community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Hi, Faye. Mimi. Hi, Mimi. Hi, Yuri. Elena.
I guess, well, I think there's a lot of, it's not just that people themselves are, um, are sick, but it's,